instead of spending money for food production, for education, for all the things that human beings need, healthcare, we spend it for weaponry. And that is, and I'm glad you, you know, when we started this discussion off by saying, what would you deal with if you were running for president? I think probably in my own mind, that's the most important issue. You just heard the then mayor of Burlington, Vermont, Bernie Sanders, back in 1987 on the city's public access station. Today, in 2019, as a U.S. senator and serious candidate for president, he's talking about the very same things on national television. He's one of the frontrunners for the 2020 Democratic presidential race and a major voice in the Democratic Party. So how did he get there? How did somebody who got 1% of the vote in Vermont elections running as an obscure third-party candidate go on to mold the Democratic platform and possibly be president? Who is Bernie Sanders? I'm Sean Morrow. Welcome to Who Is From Now This, the podcast where we examine power by looking at the people who have it through interviews with folks who've known or have followed them for years. This week, we're looking at independent Vermont senator and two-time candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination, Bernard, doesn't have a middle name, Sanders. The Vermont senator, as anyone who has heard him talk would know, isn't from Vermont. He's from Brooklyn. He's Jewish. He grew up working class with immigrant parents and went to New York City public schools. He leaves Brooklyn and heads to the University of Chicago. He gets involved in progressive activism. Surely you've seen those famous images of him being hauled away by police during civil rights protests. But apparently Chicago and New York winters weren't brutal enough for Sanders. So he heads up to Vermont. Here's Bob Kinzel. He's covered Vermont politics for Vermont Public Radio for decades. I first become aware of Bernie Sanders in the late 1970s when as a member of the Liberty Union Party, which is a very small political party in Vermont, really an anti-Vietnam War party, Bernie decides to run for the U.S. Senate. And he gets about 2% of the vote, and people think, well, okay, he's sort of a gadfly, he'll probably run again and get a couple of percent, and he won't really amount to very much as a political leader in Vermont. But Sanders kept trying, running for senator and governor several times on the Liberty Union Party ticket, maxing out at 6% of the vote in one election. And that was the best he did. So he turns local. Then he decides to run for mayor of Burlington. And Burlington is Vermont's largest city at 40,000 people. It's really quite different than any other community in Vermont. I mean, we do consider it to be a city. And he runs in 1981, and he runs as an independent, so he gets rid of that small party label. That switch from obscure third party to independent is important. It's perhaps part of Sanders' insistence on independence and moving away from more establishment institutions, even when they may politically gel with him. I called up Alan Abbey. He's another longtime Vermont reporter who was around Sanders in his early Vermont years. Like Bernie, Abby is a Jewish man from Brooklyn who found his way to Vermont in the 80s. I was a city hall reporter at the Burlington Free Press. Burlington was a rusting blue-collar city that was on the edge of going either downhill or 
turning itself around. And Bernie had been around Vermont for quite a long time, never gotten more than a few percentage points of the statewide vote, and therefore wasn't taken very seriously. In fact, he moved to Burlington only about a year before he ran for office. And when he made his announcement, which I covered for the free press, it ran on page B6, which was inside the local news section. So it wasn't a big story. Nobody gives him really any chance of winning in 1981. I mean, nobody saw it coming, including the Democratic incumbent mayor, Gordon Paquette, who campaigned, but I think felt like, oh, he had this election in the bag. What he didn't know about Bernie Sanders is that Sanders was a master at grassroots organizing. Sanders is pretty much unknown. A few long-shot races behind him. He's up against an incumbent, part of the local Democratic Party machine. He's running as an independent and had only recently moved to Burlington. But Sanders goes up and gets a lot of students at the University of Vermont registered to vote. He also organizes lots of voter registration drives. So he's got, you know, all these thousands of people who usually don't vote in Burlington. He's got them to vote for him in 1981, and he wins the race by about 10 votes. And I've got to tell you, everybody up here was completely shocked and thought, what happens now? Uh, This socialist has been elected mayor of Burlington. Socialism? Who wrote this? I'm a capitalism guy. Sanders is elected mayor of Burlington, and no one saw it coming, kind of mirroring the 2016 race. I was in politics video back then, and I remember Sanders announced his candidacy at a podium on a lawn in D.C. with really just a handful of press there. He came up to the podium, said his piece, and gruffly walked away to get back to work, his hair still the pre-national attention nest of just woke-upness. And the political media went about their day. Bernie Sanders put Burlington on the map. Ben and Jerry's put Vermont on the map. Here's the interesting thing about his time as mayor in Burlington. But Bernie oversaw a great deal of development. He was not a slash and burn radical who fought the business community at every turn. Um, after a while, the business community uh, cautiously supported him. And he changed the city forever. And there's a whole generation of change in Burlington that Bernie did not begin because it was a demographic and generational wave. But he happened to catch that wave. I got a pretty big Vermont politician on the phone to find out more. Governor Howard Dean was in the state legislature before he was appointed governor of the state, eventually running for president in 2004. He lost, but he ended up running the DNC. Most people know each other here. We treat each other much better than they treat each other nationally. (laughs) So we don't tend to lock ourselves in rooms and scream and shout at each other. We actually, Bernie had actually a pretty good relationship with the business community here in Burlington because he does what he says he's going to do. And one of the things that's really important about business is not just low taxes and all that stuff. It's predictability and stability. He did some things they didn't like and that landlords didn't like, but he always kept his word as far as I know, and he was very consistent in his approach. And that, you know, when you're trying to figure out where to move a business or where to have a business, that matters. So what did Sanders accomplish as mayor? 
At a time when Democrats are considering another mayor as candidate for president, it's worth examining. Bob Kinzel remembers those first years well. When he becomes mayor, I think he understands that he's got a couple of choices. One, he can maintain his socialist agenda and probably get very little done in Burlington with the city council, which is still made up of Republicans and Democrats. Or he can take a little bit more of a pragmatic view and try to have a couple of big picture issues to follow. And that's the route he decides to go. He actually becomes very pragmatic. He works with the business community. And the real signature for Bernie Sanders as mayor of Burlington is the Burlington waterfront. Now, Burlington sits right on the edge of Lake Champlain. And you can look from Burlington across the lake and have a spectacular view of the Adirondack Mountains. When Bernie is elected mayor, the waterfront is a disaster. It has big oil storage tanks. It's got all sorts of industrial buildings. There's almost no public access. I mean, it was dreadful. And Bernie goes to the business community and says, you know, we got something here. We've got something that could be a real jewel of economic development for this city. And he persuades them to join in an effort. Let's get rid of those oil tanks. Let's tear down those industrial buildings. Let's create a bike path. Let's have great public access. Let's have a place for businesses and restaurants to be down on the waterfront. And they all go along with it. And it becomes a spectacular success for Bernie Sanders. So for people who kind of looked at him as a mayor of Burlington saying, well, yeah, you did keep property taxes down, but really what else did you do? Uh, What he really did was improve the waterfront, which totally transformed the whole feeling around Burlington, Vermont. Former Vermont Democratic Governor Howard Dean also remembers those early years. This is how Dean and Sanders actually first met. Dean was part of the Citizens Waterfront Group, which was also working to help revitalize the area. If we go back to like uh, 1980, 1981, he's running for mayor of Burlington. You're personally involved with the effort in Burlington to revitalize the waterfront. Can you talk about when you guys first met? <laughs> That's a story I don't tell very often. We, we were not friends in the beginning. Uh, he really disliked the Democrats intensely, and I was a very loyal Democrat. So even though we were interested in some of the same things, uh, there was quite a lot of sparks. But I think, you know, we've both gotten used to each other over our 40-year knowledge of each other. Do you remember first meeting and having a first impression of him? I I do, and I'm not going to tell you the story. Trust me. I tried to get Governor Dean to tell me the story of what happened between him and Sanders behind City Hall, but he wouldn't budge. He was also just trying to build a bike path on the waterfront. Now, a little waterfront bike path may not seem like a huge issue, unless you, like, live in Burlington, Vermont, and are in the mood to take a bike ride. But local politics are super important, and this in part illustrates how Sanders would one day operate in the Senate and as a presidential candidate. Here's Bob Kinzel. Well, I think it showed for him that he was going to have to compromise in order to get what he really wanted— which was public access to the waterfront, he was going to have to make some concessions. And so, as you mentioned, you know, things like uh, high-priced condos, he was going to have to let some of that in. There's probably a little bit more business development than Bernie would have liked. But again, it showed a very pragmatic side to Bernie Sanders that said, you know, if you can get 75% of what you want, 
let's go for it, and let me show people that I can actually govern a city, appointing good people to various city posts, that Bernie Sanders, as an independent, as a socialist, could actually run a city. And that was a very important thing for him. But that isn't the only story Dean shared with us. I'll tell you a story about Bernie that I admire. Come about two or three years into his term, the progressives decide uh, they're going to boycott and picket the General Electric plant here because it's making guns to go on airplanes and they're very anti-war. And so they shut the plant down. Meanwhile, of course, all the union people who are for Bernie can't go to work. Bernie put a stop to it. He told the picketers, stop it. They're going to make these guns anyway. These are great union jobs, and I don't support this. I have never, to my recollection, seen a politician willing to choose sides in his own coalition in order to make a point. So you can say whatever you want about Bernie Sanders, but he is deeply principled, and I like that very much. So when I don't agree with him, I don't mind saying so. He has his views, I have mine. But you don't get a lot of principled people in politics, and he is one of them. Principledness and decades-long consistency. While Sanders was mayor of Burlington, he hosted a show on public access called Bernie Speaks of the Community. Uh, environmental issues. You know, some of the major environmental issues facing our society are not going to be solved. You know what? There's not going to be a society. You're talking about this problem with the ozone layer that people see in the paper every day. When they're talking about climatic changes that are measurable within a few years' time, you're talking about wrecking havoc with the entire planet. As I've said for many years, I happen not to believe that within the framework of the two-party system, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, that we're going to be able to bring about the real changes in this country that are needed uh, to benefit the vast majority of, of our people. So the issue of how you stop wars becomes the most important issue. Because we don't want people to be killed. We don't want the planet to be blown up. And furthermore, you know what we don't want? We don't want to be spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars on weapons when children and their parents and the schools and the environment need more help. Okay? In other words, we would rather spend more money on books for this school, right? A lot of things that we could buy at Bond School, correct? That's right. A lot of things that we need. We could buy the, we could build, spend money building nicer housing, right? And bigger park system and making sure that nobody has to sleep out on the street, right? So there's a lot of ways in having health care that is available to everybody that nobody has to pay for, okay? So there's a lot of ways that we can spend our money that make a lot more sense than spending them on weapons and guns and uniforms, right? By the way, in that last one, he was talking to a bunch of eight-year-olds. Nothing gets kids more excited than the military-industrial complex, right? But these clips really show that Sanders has been incredibly consistent in his views and values, even when he's talking to the tiny audience of whatever nerd watches the mayor's TV show on public access, which I guess I did to find these clips. Here's Bob Kinzel. In my mind, he is a person who is absolutely confident that his positions on issues, uh, that that is really the way that it should be, uh, that there's not a lot of room for discussion here, not a lot of room for debate, that Bernie is fully committed 
to his position on these issues, and he has been for the last 35 years. And if you challenge him as a reporter, which I think we should do, um, if you challenge him on some of those issues, he doesn't take it very well. And he tries to dismiss the question that you have, especially by saying that's straight out of the Republican playbook. Um, and he'll become a little frustrated with you and then ask you, uh, you got anything else you want to talk about or is this over? Can Sanders compromise? Compromise is a basic part of governance. It has to happen. And Sanders has always taken an outright stand against the ultra-rich, against big business, corruption. But when he gets to Washington, those are the very forces he'll have to compromise with. So can a guy who is so steadfast in his beliefs, so sure of his values, and so willing to openly talk about them possibly compromise? The way you move the needle in politics is you need to take the middle and move them to the left or move them to the right. And so it's voices on the left that are pulling the middle in that direction and voices on the right pulling the middle in that direction. And Bernie is very good at doing that. He's very good at pulling the middle more to his position. And the question becomes, at what point do you compromise? And I'm not sure where and when in our political system that the word compromise became a dirty word. You know, oh, they compromised over that. That's, you know, somehow that's very disappointing. How could you possibly do that? Well, I bet if we look back at all the major legislation in the United States Congress over the last 100 years, we would see a lot of uh, compromise and it would be viewed as being very positive. And Bernie's not very good at compromise. So he's very good at raising issues and saying income inequality. Now, this is a problem in this country. And so I just think it's a matter of political strategy of are you going to push an issue in order to highlight the issue and hope that in a couple of years you may get everything you want? Or do you compromise now and get a majority of what you want and advance the issue? So I guess to be perfectly fair, Bernie does it both ways. That's where the big split between Sanders and the establishment Democratic Party comes. Not what the goals are, but how to get there. In 1990, he runs for Vermont's sole House of Representatives seat as an independent and wins. Bernie usually has had the position of saying it's a revolution. We've got to go for the big picture, and anything short of it is not worth it. So we see that in legislation that he supports as both a member of the U.S. House and of the U.S. Senate, that he's advancing the big issue that's out there. And I think in some ways he feels like he's educating the public about this issue. So if the public isn't quite ready to take on the particular position that Bernie has, he has hopes that by talking about it for a couple of years, he can move people to that position. We'll get back to Sanders's ability to move people. But a great example of revolution versus incremental change is one of Sanders's longtime hallmark issues, healthcare. Here's a bit of Sanders on healthcare from his old public access show. How in this country can we make health care affordable to all the people? Now, what your point, I think, is if, if somebody goes to the hospital and doesn't pay, somebody else is going to have to pay higher to get them, And that's the point that the okay. hospitals make. But I think what we should also understand is that in most of the industrialized countries of the world, including Canada, you know, 50 miles north of us, yeah. you have a situation where health care, I mean, not that it's free, obviously somebody is paying no. for it, 
but it's built out of the tax base in the same way that if you call the police department here right now, you don't pay the police department $100 for coming to your house. It's assumed that you're entitled to police protection regardless of what your income is. And in many countries of the world, healthcare is regarded in that same light. Oh, yeah. Healthcare is a right. You drive down the street, you don't pay a toll when you drive in a street in Burlington. It's free, right? Yeah. The city takes the responsibility for building streets. The state has the interstate. In many countries of the world, healthcare is considered a right of people. That was 1987. And Sanders is still on healthcare. Governor Howard Dean was also a proponent of increased equity in healthcare. Dean hugely cut the uninsured rate in the state when he was in office. Well, I mean, I don't think either Senator Sanders' position or mine has changed very much. I mean, I consider us allies in health care. He wants to go much faster than I do. I'm a bit of a pragmatist about this. There is no system in the world that bans private health insurance. Uh, I do think anybody should be allowed to sign up for Medicare, and they would have to buy into it, of course. But I believe, and I did believe when I was campaigning, 15 years ago, that you've got to let Americans be comfortable with the change, and you most of all have to let them make their own choices. So I think it's probably a mistake to ban all private insurance, much as I think would be a good idea, because I think, again, I think private insurance is very problematic in terms of its corporate behavior in general. But I do think that people are going to want the choice of private insurance, and they have that choice even in Britain, which Bernie holds up as an example, you can get out of the system and go get private insurance. My attitude is this. Rich people are always going to get what they want. Let's not have a big fight about what rich people get. Let's make sure the 95% of people who aren't rich get what they need. And that means universal health care and the ability to buy into Medicare no matter what age you're in. During Sanders' time in the House of Representatives before moving to the Senate, Sanders even personally helped some of his constituents get medication, even if it was to prove a point. Here's Bob Kinzel of Vermont Public Radio. The other thing he did early in his congressional career is he's always talked about the high cost of prescription drugs. And I think he might have been the first person to say, if you look across the border from Vermont into Canada, you see a situation where the same prescription drugs cost maybe 50 to 75 percent less because they have a very different system of regulating prescription drug costs in Canada. And he came up with this idea of what would happen if I got a group of people who all take prescription drugs for chronic reasons, so they need to take these drugs every day and they're very, very expensive. And we took a bus ride into Canada and we went to a drugstore and we set all this up and people could get their prescriptions filled in Canada. And that was the start of the whole Bernie Sanders bus ride to Canada to buy cheap prescription drugs. And he would often mention this on the floor of the House and the Senate as a way to show you've got two countries side by side. Drug prices in one country are out of control. In the other country, they're very reasonable. And really, all you have to do is cross the border in order to take advantage of that. So he became a huge supporter of the idea of re-importing drugs from Canada to the United States because essentially they're the same drugs that are available here. Quick aside, but how chilling is the phrase re-import? The drugs were made in America, shipped to Canada, and it's still cheaper to go up there personally and buy them. Here's Bob Kinzel explaining how Sanders' vote for the Affordable Care Act was a compromise. It came down to a concrete benefit added to the bill just for his constituents. 
Bernie Sanders, as you know, supports Medicare for all, uh, a single-payer health care system in the United States. He looked at the Affordable Care Act and said, this really does not go far enough. Uh, I don't see how I can vote for this thing. Bernie is also a very big supporter of community health centers. And these are federally qualified health centers, and Vermont has about 18 or 20 of them. And roughly a third of all Vermonters get their primary care from community health care centers. So Bernie said if the uh, sponsors of the Affordable Care Act would put a major investment to expand the budget of these federally qualified community health centers, he would vote for the bill. They did. He did. He would say he voted for it reluctantly. So I guess there's an example of Bernie compromising and getting something that was very important. A few years after that, this. Sanders is standing at a hastily assembled lectern on a nondescript lawn outside of his office. Let me uh, just make a brief comment and be happy to take a few questions. We don't have an endless amount of time. I've got to get back. He's running for president. Sanders' campaign was thought of as a long shot. Much like another once inconceivable candidate, late night hosts made fun of his hair and how he pronounced huge, rather than addressing the populist views he spoke about that would awaken slumbering political demographics. But even when he announced running for president in May at the waterfront in Burlington, I think he was polling around two or three percent. And I think most people, not just me, but virtually everybody thought this is really a long shot. You know, there were rumors in 2014, at the end of 2014 and early 2015, that Bernie was thinking about running for president. And I got to tell you, most people in Vermont thought, that's a crazy idea. Why would Bernie want to run for president? This is just not anything that's attainable. And of course, he surprised everybody. He became the candidate to challenge Hillary Clinton. People for whatever reason, seem to be dissatisfied, or some people seem to be dissatisfied with Hillary Clinton. And the Sanders campaign took off. And I think they felt like, wow, they had really touched a nerve in American politics that in a way, Bernie Sanders has been talking about these issues for the last 35 years. And now the American electorate has caught up to Bernie Sanders. And I think during that 2016 campaign, I was really surprised at how well he did and how he was able to tap into the enthusiasm of young people. He would go speak at different colleges and get treated like a rock star. I hadn't ever seen anything quite like that in Bernie Sanders' previous career as a politician in Vermont. Beyond consistent, another thing I heard a lot? Don't underestimate Sanders. Here's Alan Abbey. Don't underestimate him. Take him seriously. His appeal can be broad and he has a way to connect with people. And he's been underestimated for a very long time. And so while I can't say, frankly, in 1980 or 81, I could have imagined Sanders being a credible candidate for president, not once but twice, Six or seven years ago, when the first rumblings came out and he was instantly dismissed by the mainstream media and the Washington establishment, I said and I wrote at the time, that's a mistake. But maybe it's not Sanders himself that's underestimated. What's underestimated is the American people's support for his ideas. 
For example, Kaiser Family Foundation, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that focuses on health care, found that a majority of Americans support a Medicare for All-like plan. They also found that that majority support didn't happen till 2016. This is something that people have talked about and mostly in the context of Trump, but I would say also in the context of Sanders, that there is a large dissent in America of people who feel left behind and people who feel left out of the direction that the country is going. And Sanders, to his credit, I think, uh, has the potential to bring out the better side of the nature of the folks that are outside of that loop. Here's Bob Kinzel. Vermonters, for the most part, really, really like Bernie Sanders. And what might be surprising for some folks is we have some conservative areas of Vermont, some of the more rural parts of the state. And you might have a conservative running as a Republican for governor, and you'd see some lawn signs for that Republican candidate, and then right next to it would be Bernie Sanders for Congress. And there's a feeling, I think, among a lot of not only urban Vermonters, people who live in our cities, but also rural people, that they like the idea that they can send Bernie Sanders down to Congress and have him yell and scream a little bit about what's wrong with our political system. They might not always agree with his solution, but they would say, give him hell, Bernie. I mean, that's what you would hear from a lot of people. And so I think his approval ratings in Vermont are sky high. I mean, of course, there's going to be a group of people who don't like him under any circumstances, and that might be 25% of the population in Vermont. But for the most part, he is considered a hero in the state of Vermont. That The fact that he has gone from mayor of Burlington to a member of Congress to a member of the U.S. Senate to a serious presidential candidate in 2016 and when you think about how he has altered the agenda of the National Democratic Party in the last four years, it is really remarkable. I mean, there are a lot of things that Bernie Sanders was saying in 2016 that are just par for the course now. I mean, everybody's talking about universal health care. Everybody likes the idea of taking steps to tax the wealthy, to raise minimum wage, to have free college tuition. I think a lot of Vermonters look at this guy and say, this is pretty amazing that the former mayor of Burlington now is a driving force behind the policies of the National Democratic Party. And I think they feel very good about that. Sanders's Vermontness is important. Here's former Governor Dean on the politics of Vermont. We're a high-tax, high-service state. We don't stick it to working people here to the best of our ability. we got plenty of problems. We're in a rural state, and as you know, rural America is under a lot of economic pressure. But we do try to make sure that everybody gets to fully participate in the things they need to be part of society. We're very uh, democratic with a small d. Uh, town budgets for most of the towns are decided at a meeting in March, and the citizens, whoever wants to show up, and they have pies and cookies and stuff, and, and they argue about whether they should buy a new road grader or pay the road foreman more, and then they vote. So it's kind of a very, very democratic state with a small d. Nobody in Vermont thinks they're better or worse than anybody else as a human being. But of course, Sanders isn't from Vermont. What does being a Jewish kid from Brooklyn mean to Sanders? 
I mean, Bernie has been in Vermont for something on the order of 50 years, but he still has the Brooklyn accent he grew up with. He had it then, he has it now. And that's symptomatic or emblematic of the fact that he hasn't changed. His demeanor was, oh, look, he, he dresses better now, but his hair is as unkempt now as it was then, or is as unkempt then as it is now. And he had a broken down old shoe kind of a vibe then. He was very guarded personally, and he's very guarded now. He's only recently spoken under pressure from his own people and supporters about his upbringing and his family life. He didn't speak at all about it when he was in Burlington, and he's been consistent on that. He said then and he says now, politicians, it should be about their policies and not their personalities. I think that there is a basic bottom line pride that American Jews have in the success of other American Jews, whether it's Sandy Koufax or Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Bernie Sanders. And that is something that all immigrant groups and outsider groups have when one of theirs is successful. So that is clearly there. At the same time, Bernie has taken a challenging position for many American Jews on Israel. And partly it's the classic and minority belief that you don't air your own people's dirty laundry in public. And so the internal Jewish debate about Israel and its role in the life of American Jews and its actions in the world today are debated fiercely within the Jewish community. But it's the kind of thing that they don't, Jews don't really want everybody to know about. So Bernie embodies two sides of this for a lot of people, and there's a real struggle there, especially in in this current era where Israel has become weaponized as an issue through the Trump administration. And of course, yeah, there's lots of young Jewish progressives who are constantly struggling with this and support Bernie. But I feel like the Israel conversation kind of clouds the greater conversation of like, and I'm making up this phrase now of him possibly breaking through the matzah ceiling, you know, being the first Jew to ever (laughs) get to this point. Um, So if we take Israel out of the equation, what does that mean? Okay, so this is quite a hypothetical question, of course, because you can't. But assuming we could take Israel out of this equation, I would say that it would be as huge as it was for the African-American community to have a black president. And it was as huge as it was for the Roman Catholic community in America to have a Catholic president in John Kennedy. But it's complicated. I think Bernie is capable of taking a critical position about Israel because At the same time, it seems to come from a position of real affection that whatever critique you can have of Israel now, it is important to acknowledge the success and the great achievements of the Jewish people in Israel who have created a state after centuries of oppression and genocide. So he comes at it from a position of strength in that regard, and has a deep understanding. But at the same time, the core Jewish thing that I see in Bernie is actually his desire to provide Palestinians with dignity and freedom for themselves. So assuming, say he were president, he would come to Israel with a critical view from a position of affection, shall we even say love, but he needs I think, in education, in the complex situation here, but he he would come at it with 
a position, by the way, that is more acceptable in Israel than it is in the Jewish community in America. Bernie's position would not place him on the outs within the Israeli political spectrum. It does, however, place him at a difficult third rail wedge issue in the American political situation. And just for context on that, where are you speaking to us from right now? I'm speaking to you from my home in Jerusalem, Israel. I've lived in Israel for 20 years. That point Abby made about Israel being this difficult issue in the American political situation, it's key here. When Sanders spoke up for the rights of the Palestinian people in 2016, op-eds came out calling him a bad Jew. It's pretty ridiculous. But a simple matter of fact is, and I'm saying this as also a Jewish kid from New York, Israel-Palestine relations are one of the many, many issues in the United States completely dominated by money and politics. And Sanders has long derided the corrosive effect that moneyed interests have in our government. Let's talk about Sanders and money and politics. Dave Leventhal is the editor-at-large at the Center for Public Integrity and has also worked with the Center for Responsive Politics. He's one of the best journalists covering money and politics today. Bernie Sanders is hardly the first politician to talk about money and politics or the first politician to push back at what he considers and many Democrats in particular consider to be the toxic influence of money and politics, the corrosive influence of money and politics. But what Senator Sanders has done beyond just talking about it is do something in 2016 during his presidential campaign that really no presidential campaign had done before, at least in modern history. He had run a campaign that was very, very much uh, almost exclusively about small dollar donations, not going to get the big money during big fundraisers from the folks who could write big checks, but really trying to run a nationwide campaign and a successful one at that uh, on the backs of people who were making contributions of $5, $10, or as Bernie Sanders often liked to talk about, donations of $27. Uh, and he was able to do that at a level that maybe didn't win him the Democratic nomination in the end, of course, but made him competitive against a candidate who nobody really thought, at least initially, Bernie Sanders would ever be competitive with. And that was Hillary Clinton, the ultimate nominee. So Bernie Sanders, in a way, was able to prove a concept that one could voluntarily opt out of raising money from big dollar donors, could opt out of the uh, sort of new post-Citizens United system of super PACs and dark money and money where you, you know, can benefit from it in unlimited amounts and said, hey, I'm just going to run a different kind of campaign. I'm going to run in a way that is going to be a major counterpoint to the way that most people are doing it. Oh, and I'm actually going to be viable. So that was a big difference. And it really speaks to sort of what we see right now in 2020, where in a very major way, you have many of the Democratic candidates uh, in particular, almost trying to outdo each other in the kinds of money that they're not willing to take. Bernie Sanders was very much a, an innovator and a trailblazer in this regard. And of course, Bernie Sanders is also in the race himself in 2020, just as he was in the 2016 presidential race. But is that change even realistic? It's incredibly expensive to run a political campaign. It can't all be funded on donations of $27. Or can it? Just using the 2016 campaign 
as a rough barometer, Hillary Clinton raised well more than $700 million, Donald Trump more than $400 million. That's not even taking into account some of the outside money that was pouring into the race from various other types of organizations. It's a huge, huge endeavor. And if you're in the heat of a general election presidential campaign, you need to be able to get your message out all across the country. You need to get ads up on television. You need to pay hundreds of staffers. You need to be able to do all the things that one needs to do to run a successful presidential campaign. And if you're not able to do that, especially on the communications end and the organizing end and the getting out the vote end, then you're going to potentially hurt yourself, and you're potentially going to lose the race. So those are just the hardcore political realities that any candidate is going to have to deal with, and we don't have any proof or any type of model yet for a general election presidential candidate running a strictly small-dollar operation, but that's not to say that it's impossible. Sanders ended up losing the 2016 primary, but not before building up a massive coalition of progressives. His points of view were included in the 2016 Democratic platform at the convention. They had to include them. He'd built such a strong, at times maybe too strong, following within the party. His emphasis on grassroots organizing led to people like a certain young bartender, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, running to represent the Bronx in Congress. Let's say you're listening to this podcast in 2024. The internet's forever, you know? Maybe you're listening to reflect on President Sanders, the matzah ceiling reduced to matzah meal. Maybe Sanders has done an amazing job with all Americans insured and massive climate regulations being implemented. He's somehow gotten Congress to go along with him on his progressive agenda, solved the student loan debt crisis, and billionaires are paying their fair share of taxes while still keeping their businesses in America. Or maybe not. Maybe he can't implement any of his ambitious ideas. Or maybe his vision for America simply doesn't work. We really can't afford his social programs, or Congress just won't pass any of them, leaving government at a standstill. Sanders is consistent. All the evidence says that as president, he would do his best to implement his vision. But what about when he hits roadblocks? As mayor of Burlington, Sanders was able to compromise and did what he said he was going to do, predictability and stability. But that's not why Vermont sent him to Congress. Go get him, Bernie. Raise hell, Bernie. He's been able to shift the conversation and to bring important political ideas into the discourse. But although big ideas are important and inspirational, Compromise is the mechanism of politics, and an inability to reach compromise is one of the major reasons why many people believe Washington is broken. At a time when America is more polarized than ever, is Bernie Sanders the man who can fix it? Or maybe it's 2024 and you can't listen to this podcast, because the effects of climate change and political division have already caused the collapse of the United States. And, you know, all of civilization. This has been Who Is the Podcast. Next week, we'll cover not a person, but the people who have shaped the political conversation in a very different way. Fox News. Find out next Tuesday. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and subscribe. A sincere thank you to our guests, former Vermont Governor Howard Dean, Vermont Public Radio's Bob Kinzel, the Shalom Hartman Institute's Alan Abbey, and Center for Public Integrity's David Leventhal. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. 
I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Ernie Indradat. Additional writing by PJ Evans. Production support from Rob Baynard, Amanda Earle, Margot Wall, and Faluke Tuakli. Emily Feld and David Zwick are our producers in Los Angeles. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, and Nangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Zaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series of Who Is, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube.